Welcome to the Westside Barbell Podcast. Um, today's guest is Gary Benford. Gary, a pleasure to have you here. Um, we try to start off these podcasts from the start. And where did you first hear about Westside Barbell? Well, first of all, thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here. I, uh, I moved to Columbus in 1979, June of 79. I'm from Pennsylvania. I went to Slippery Rock University. That's where I first started powerlifting in college. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I moved here. I, I accepted a position as the fitness director of the YMCA downtown. This is in June of 79. And I had been there probably a few weeks, and I met one of the members working out in the weight room one day, I think Doug Fleming, and we started talking and this and that. And I've been training for a couple of months there at the Y because there was a weight room. Doug says, well, we got to get over to Doug Heath's house. I work out over there. And I said, well, who's Doug Heath? You know, I had just moved here. I didn't know a soul when I came to Columbus, yeah. not one person. So when I went over to Doug's house uh, over off of Morse Road and met Doug and worked out in his basement a few times. And after doing that, Doug says, I got to take you over to Louis." And I said, well, who's Louis? You know, and Louis Simmons. And I thought, oh, I remember him from the old Powerlifting USA magazines I used to get in college, you know. Yeah. So one day, you know, this is probably around January of 1980. So we're talking 42 years ago, I guess. Uh, I walked into the garage at 590 Larkham. And it was just an old school, barbaric garage. No floor, no heat, no air conditioning, a couple dogs, Nitro being one. Nikki was the other one. And I started lifting there and I met Lou. And that's where, I, that's where everything changed for me. That's where I got better. You know, I could, I could probably squat, I was squatting and deadlifting around 500 as a 181 and benching around 300. And that's with no gear. We didn't have squat suits and bench shirts. You had a belt, yeah. uh, some wrist wraps, knee belts were just, or excuse me, knee wraps were just coming out. And uh, I remember I squatted with Olympic-style shoes. Well, Louis saw that, and that changed, <laughs> along with a lot of other things I was doing wrong. And uh, I began, and I went over there, and I really didn't have the qualifications, as most of the lifters had to be there, but Lou let me stay. Yeah. And he started mentoring me and teaching me things, along with all the other guys, Gary Sanger, Doug Heath, who I mentioned, um, uh, Doug Fleming, uh, Jimmy Seitzer, Bill Whitaker, Kevin Akins, Tom Pellucci, uh, Randy Gamage. There would be like 10 or 12 of us in there training in that garage in one rack, you know, three to four times per week. So like on Fridays, I think it was at four o'clock, we would squat there. And if you were late, and if there was 315 on the bar, that's what you're taking. Yeah. Because Lou didn't let you go back down to start over again. You know, Louie was a heavy crane operator at the time. That's what he did for a living. And he would pull up with his truck out in the garage around 330 or so and get out. And I remember the first time I met him, I'm like, holy smokes, this guy's jacked. I mean, he was built and put together, you yeah. know, and he was what he was. And I just basically said, yes, sir. I was just happy to be there. And I'm looking around. And I'm like, I don't belong here at all physically. You know, I, you know, when I first started lifting, my first meet was in 1974. And I squatted 185. I benched 170. And I didn't know what a deadlift was. They had to show me in the warm-up room. I <laughs> jackhammered two, 240 all the way up. I totaled 600 weighing 143. So I had, was not genetically gifted. But I was determined to get better. And it, the funny thing was, even prior to all that, when I was a senior in high school, my parents had met with a guidance counselor at high school, and my the, parent, the guidance counselor told my mom and dad that your son's not college material. Don't send him to college. Because I was a marginal student in high yeah. school. I was a marginal athlete. And I went, and I learned how to lift the barbell, and it changed my life. 
What was your initial inspiration to get into strength training? Uh, good question. So in high school, I became a javelin thrower on my senior year on the track team. I was pretty good. I came, I finished like fourth in the state. Yeah. I could throw the javelin about 175, 180 feet weighing, you know, 140 some pounds. But I never lifted a weight my whole life until I went to school. And I just started there. And I thought, well, if I get stronger, I can throw it farther. And I met some yeah. other guys who were discus throwers and shot putters, and they were in the barbell club, and they were lifting too. And for several months, my first semester there, this is the fall of 73, I would walk in, and guys would laugh at me every time I walked in. Like, I would make, get made fun of because I was, I, I remember when I benched 135, I, I was so proud to had two plates on there, you know? Yeah. I remember the night that I squatted two and a quarter all by myself. And I was happy to have four plates on there. Yeah. But that's who I was, and that's how I started. And learning how to lift and the dedication and the perseverance and the focused determination that it took made me study. It made me t apply myself. And I got a 2.5 my first semester, and I thought, I can stay here. I can stay in college. I can do this. Yeah. And every semester afterwards, I made the dean's list. And I graduated cum laude graduate school, wow. got a master's degree, uh, a graduate assistant, graduated summa cum laude, all because I learned how to lift a barbell. Changed my life. That's amazing. Before you heard or got introduced to Westside Barbell, did you have any other role model that you looked up to that was in the industry? Yeah, at the time, being from Pennsylvania, there were really, there was two great lifters at the time that m mentored me back then. A guy named Jack Welch, and he was with the Ambridge VFW Barbell Club. He ended up winning the World IPF Powerlifting Championship in 75 in Birmingham, England. He was a 148. I think he did 496, 352, and 563 as a 148. And again, there's no gear here. Yeah. Okay? And another fellow named Joe Orengia, he ran the Prescott Powerman's team in Erie, Pennsylvania. And I got to know them because they were really good lifters. Yeah. Uh, for that time, because again, there's no gear or anything. And they, I learned how to run meets at Slippery Rock. The first meet I ever ran was in a, a hallway of a dormitory. You know, I was just kind of learning <laughs> as I went. And then I eventually started running them into the East West Gymnasium and in the field house. And I got known for running really good meets. And these guys would come and compete in my, my contest, mostly guys from Pennsylvania who were lifters there. And then Jack and Joe became friends of mine. And, uh, uh, what well, made you get into wanting to start powerlifting meets? Was it there was a lack of them? Yeah, or? pretty much. I became president of the barbell club my second year there. All five years I was president of the weightlifting club. And I had been to a few meets. And I thought, why don't we have a meet here at school? Yeah. You know, Because there were other colleges in Pennsylvania, like Penn State and Villanova and Pitt and so forth, that had guys lifting too. So I created a, a state collegiate championship. And they came to Slipper Rock to do it. And they had another event called the Allegheny Mountain Association Junior and Senior National Championships. And I ran that a couple of times. And then just some open meets and so forth and a couple bench meets. And I was doing it as much to, for the guys on my lifting team as I was just for people in general. Uh, my second year in grad school there, I took 16 guys to Pensacola, Florida and two Winnebago vans to compete in the nationals. This was the fourth year I'd went to the collegiate nationals. We lost the national championship by one point to the University of Texas. My 114 pounder bombed out. Had he just benched the bar, we would have got four points. We could have won it ourselves and we lost. So here we drive, we're coming back. Everybody's pissed off. Nobody's got any money. Everybody's starving. Everybody wants to go home. And one of the vans breaks down in Alabama. Now 16 guys crawl into one Winnebago. That was the, the trip from hell. I will never, ever drive to Florida again. <laughs> we drove all the way back. And that's kind of how it ended there for me when I, before I moved out here. 
can you explain what the atmosphere felt in that garage? Well, you know, it was pretty Spartan, but, you know, Louis was everything. He, he just was the energy that, that made everything go. And we, we were all individuals and we all had different personalities. You know, you had someone like Gary Sanger, who was a college professor in mathematics. Yeah. And then we had like Matt Dimmel, who was a, man, a maniac, yeah. you know, but he was a, he and I were good friends. It was just, that's just the way Matt was, you know, I got along with him fine and everything. And so everybody had different personalities and, and uh, we just figured out a way to get along with different weight classes. You know, we would have a, a power rack. There's no jack racks then. So you'd have to change manually the pins. So a shorter person, a taller person. Tom Pellucci's a taller guy. Uh, Kevin Akins was six foot six, a shot putter at Ohio State. You know, he had to change the racks for him. And benching was the same way. I remember in the wintertime, we would go in there and bench. And, you know, he had this little gas propane heater in the corner. And we would have gloves on benching because it was so cold. Yeah. <laughs> But that's where we all lifted because the environment made the difference. And Lou was always, back then, he was always coming up with something. Yeah. You would go in and you're going, okay, what are we going to, we're doing reverse hypers. What is that? And he would show us how to do the reverse hyper. And we were laughing because it looked so goofy at the time. And we didn't have a machine because he hadn't invented it yet. So yeah. we would manually tie 25-pound plates around our ankles with a utility belt, and someone would lift you up over a couple padded sit-up boards on the rack, and you would manually do your reverse hypers. And we did those for 10 years like that. We'd do high box and milk carton squats, and we we first started dragging weights out in the alley behind his house. You know, yeah. you see all these cars pull up in the alley behind 590 Lark. I mean, all these guys, all of us, walking back and forth in the alley, dragging weights, and I wonder what the neighbors thought. You know, yeah. <laughs> it was just a crazy, crazy place in that regard. But everybody got better, you know, and everybody supported each other, and we went and competed together in meets. And, and you know, at that time, Westside Barbell didn't exist, the name. Yeah. It was, there was a bunch of lifters in Cleveland called from Black's Health World. Mm -hmm. John Black, Jack Sedaris, John Florio, uh, Steve Wilson, uh, Dave Wolber, just a bunch of guys. And yeah. we were like Black's Health World South. So we would wear the shirts and we would go to meets and all of us would compete together. And it wasn't until the late 80s into the early 90s, and I don't remember when, that Louis came up with Westside Barbell. And then he opened a commercial gym, which he hated because he's not a commercial gym guy. <laughs> and then there was another one. And then we were over at Georgesville Road. That's what I remember the most. And, you know, now here. Um, and it just, people just came and went. You know, it was a core of guys, but people were always coming in. Somebody would show up and... You know, my first wife, Susie, um, I had met her at the Y. She was taking a fitness class, and I started a weight training. She had never lifted a weight either. Yeah. And she still holds all the records here mm -hmm. at the 97-pound class. And uh, so I took her to lose. I brought Mariah Liggett, who we dated in college, and I brought her to lose. Laura Dodd, who was the premier 165-pounder in the world yeah. for women, she was a police officer, worked out at the Y. I brought her to the garage. And one more girl, Sue Meany, was a lifeguard at the Y, and I brought her over to lose too. So I had a lot of women that I had influence to come over to Westside to help build a women's team along with Doris. Which became one of the most successful yes, it women's did. team of all time. Yes, it did. And Susie and Doris were friends because Susie was a 97-pounder. I mean, how many people, women weigh 100 pounds? Yeah. And Doris was 105, you know, and I can remember, funny story, I can remember they're cutting weight in a sauna. And I said, Lou, have you seen Doris? He goes, yeah, I just saw her. This was at a meet. I think we were up in Canton someplace. I just saw her. There's a priest walking behind her right now. So <laughs> it's just like, you know, if she's going to survive the weight yeah. loss. Um, 
But yeah, that became a pretty good women's lifting team. Later on, there was Debbie Sorensen who came uh, at 181. Uh, and years after that, Amy Weisberger and so forth. So uh, that's kind of how all that started. You know, I was kind of an impetus there, not to toot my own horn, but yeah. I brought kind of the first wave of women into the into the garage. Do you think that was one of the the start of where people realized that the system was universal could work for men and for women? I think so. You know, we would lift on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Sunday, and the girls were there Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. And he trained them the same way that we trained, you yeah. know. Uh, you know, most of them needed, well, the fact all of them needed his guidance, you yeah. know. And, you know, we all know who Lou was and who is. You know, his energy level, it's just unmatched. You never, you'll never... You'll never meet anybody remotely like him, ever. No. Did you, from day one, meeting him, did you realize, oh, this is this is somebody different, this is someone oh, special? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was just lucky. Yeah. You know, I mean, I just I kind of fell out of the sky and showed up there one day. You know, and had I not met the couple people that I mentioned, I would have never got to where I was in lifting. You know, I still compete today, and that never would have happened. You know, he was the impetus behind everything for me. How were you able to sustain that relationship and what role did you did you feel you played amongst the lifters amongst the gym at that time you know my my uh if you want to call it notoriety wasn't as a as a lifter even though i was an elite level lifter i, I was a, a a terrific meat promoter and i say that proudly yeah uh i was the meat director for nine ymca nationals championships two senior national championships and two world championships plus six uh, high state bench meets uh, my whole thing in running a meet was i wanted you to come to my event and never have been to a better meet in your life yeah so for example by the end when i was running the world championships i would have five thousand people at the meet just imagine like today okay five thousand people i had espn there all right a four-day event, World Championships in 94 and 95. On Thursday, you had a 9 o'clock and a 3 o'clock session, women, teenagers. Friday, 9 o'clock, 3 o'clock. Saturday, 9-3. Sunday, 9-3. Over 400 lifters. I would have over 200 volunteers working. All of my staff was paid. I paid all my judges. I paid my announcer. I paid all the scorekeepers, the expediter, the, everybody. All the key people I had paid. I put them up in the rooms. I paid for their food. They worked for me which is a whole different thing than if you're a volunteer. Yeah. Okay. I paid him a stipend to work and I had a team that was really good at doing this and I would use them every year, the same guys, the same announcer, people that knew what was going on. So when you would come to compete in my warm-up room, you would have three carpeted platforms with three monoliths on it. You would have all new, all new uh, squat bars or Texas power bars or elite deadlift bars. Yeah. There would be doctors there, massage therapists there, food, drinks, sound system, overhead projector so you could see what's going on, TV so that you could see what's going on, plenty of space, and I would also provide loaders in the warm-up room for you so you didn't have to load anything. I only let one person in per lifter, and I had police at the door to make sure that nobody else piled in. You know, you go to a meet today, and there's like five guys in there trying to help one guy put on a bench shirt. It's, yeah. it's ridiculous. Everybody just gets in the way, right? Well, there, after you got one guy, I got the guys back there, they'll load the bar, he can wrap your knees, he can put your shirt on for you, and people came because they loved those conditions because it enabled them to perform. So to answer your question, a long story short, the guys here at Westside loved coming into my meets. First of all, it's right in town. Yeah. Sleep in your own bed. 
get up in the morning and go way in and go home after that. And two, you never have better conditions to lift in in your life. I had met a gentleman, you know, I was probably 10, 15 years into it named Jim Sutherland. He was working for Universal Fitness Equipment out in Iowa and he built me a computerized lifting platform. So the racks for the squat came out of the floor. It's a, it's a platform. They come out of the floor, they go in, they go out, they go up, they go down. So when you weighed in, you would give your rack height and I would have someone there who would have all your numbers down. And they would say, Tom Barry's up 13 in and he would set it and he would just ready to go. Okay, there's no man, you're, you're, you're loaded yeah. enough, nobody's got to do nothing, bar's all set and ready to go. And then we would use the same one for the bench. We just put a bench out there and then they would disappear for the deadlift, just on the floor. It was all done by the computer. So there was no manual lifting, no this, no that. This was before the monoliths came out. You know, years later, we used yeah. the monolith instead. That's how much I was trying to make things better. You know, I was always thinking, how can I make, if I was in this meet, what would I want? Yeah. What would I want? How could I make it better for all the guys? You know, and I had a party for them afterwards and people came. And, you know, when I started, first, started, first started running the Y Nationals, I had lifted in one in West Virginia. Louis took all of us down. I think it was in Beckley, West Virginia. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, YMCA Nationals. I work for a YMCA. How does, how does this work? What? And I contacted the national office in Chicago, and there was no knowledge of any such thing that they had approved. So I got the Y to approve me using the name, <laughs> and I kept it from that point on because I had worked for a Y. Yeah. And I ran it at my downtown Y a couple of years, and I ran it at the North Y four or five years, and it just kept kept out growing itself. Then I went to a Radisson Hotel and ran it there a couple of times with a bigger venue, and eventually just kept going. You know, at that point, so that was my thing was running big meets, and at the same time, I was a okay lifter, a good lifter. I was good enough to stay at Lose and train. I got my yeah. elite in 1990, and you know that's what I did. You know, where did the inspiration come from? Because it, what you have just said has cleared up so many things and that uh, I was used to going to the meets from 2011 onwards. So I guess that's my frame of reference. Okay. So when you would talk with Lou or talk with people from the 70s and 80s, they'd talk about the Y Nationals. They would talk and they'd this grandiose events, which I couldn't get my head around, but now it makes so much sense. But what was the inspiration for the continuous growth? Like, did you look at other sports and see what they were doing? I just wanted it to be the best it could be. You know, I, 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 we had a magazine then, which we don't have today. It was called Powerlifting USA. It was the Bible of powerlifting. Yeah. Everybody looked forward to their Powerlifting USA magazine, which came out once a month because there's no internet. There's, you know, there's no social media. That stuff never existed. And I became good friends with Mike Lambert, who owned mm -hmm. and published Powerlifting USA magazine. And every year he would come to my meet from California and put it on the cover. So if I ran the meet in December, it was either on the cover in January or February. What a tremendous promo for my events. Yeah. It's on the cover of the magazine. And he would write and write glowing remarks about it. And people would read it and go, I want to go to that meet. You know? And it just kept, kept kind of feeding itself. And I've always been a leader in adult fitness all my life. So it was just an intuitive drive that I always had to make anything that I was doing better. Mm -hmm. I was never satisfied with anything. If I did something, I thought, okay, what else can we do? How else can we make this better? You know, uh, uh, I had a, a scale that was brought in from a, a, a feed place so the guys could weigh themselves 24-7, several days in advance. Guys would come to the hotel like at the Worlds, yeah. be two, three days early. That scale is always there. You want to go downstairs and get on a scale, you can do that. Just simple things like that, you know, that people wouldn't think about. I had vendors in my uh, around the 
where the spectator stats. So you can buy, come and buy a booth, and I would sell booths. I probably had 20, 25 booths that you could sell your shirts or your books or your wraps or your smelling or ammonia salts or whatever you wanted. So I, it was just part of me. I just never, never satisfied with what I was doing. I was always wanting to make it better. Always wanted to make it better. How hard was it to get 5,000 people to come to an event? You know, it just grew over time because of the tenure of me being uh, – having my meats being shown on the cover of that magazine where eventually it was like, you know, I would try to sell tickets and I would put out ads here and there and it just happened. Yeah. You know, I just, I would advertise in PLUSA, but because of the tenure and amount of years that I was doing those huge events, people would just show up. And, uh, I remember, you know, meat entry was $50 <laughs> today. Everybody spends a hundred to go to a bench meet yeah. and to get into the, to get into the event was 10 bucks. $10, okay? It's pretty cheap. Mm -hmm. And I would have a police officer at the door and I had a couple of my staff sitting there and the, like you would be comp to come in. Of course, Lou would be comp. I had a list of workers and comp people. Yeah. And if you're not on that list, that cop ain't letting you in. Yeah. So I was able to generate a lot of money too. So when I worked for the Y, the Y got all that money. It was just part of my job. Yeah. I'm, I'm running basketball tournaments and handball leagues and you know triathlons and all these other events for the Y. And after I left the Y after 12 years, I got in the commercial gym business. Uh, Jim Lorimer's son, Bob, and I became business partners. And uh, we owned and operated nine locations for almost 20 years. Wow. We had a couple hundred employees, about 25,000 members. And now that was part of my gym business. I was running big meets for our gym business for exposure. So yeah. we were a, a sponsor and we got a lot of notoriety and so forth. So I, I was fortunate because either at the Y or in my gyms, I always had access to people to volunteer. So... I might ask you to work the squat lift, for, for example, five guys. You work the, the 242, 275-pound class. You start on the squat, and you're done. Then I got another five guys. Everybody was fresh. Everybody was dressed the same. Yeah. Everybody had a uniform on. It looked professional. You know. So when you try to attract an ESPN, you have to be able to make it look like something on ESPN. Yeah. But I always had access to people to be able to pull this stuff off because I would spend $20,000 before I had one entry fee, wow. just to provide everything. I remember the first time I ran an event at the Radisson Hotel, I sat in a vacant ballroom for four and a half hours, sitting there by myself one afternoon, mapping out everything I wanted to see. I was visualizing everything I wanted to be, how I wanted it to be, where the flags were gonna hang, where the lights were gonna be, how much square footage did I have? And I just prepped it all in advance. And um, I wanted that event to be great for all the guys, especially all the guys that came from our gym to yeah. come compete. That's just astounding. It's a... Uh, Thank you. It, um, what was the most, I guess, surprising thing you may have learned from putting on these meets that you didn't foresee happening? Well, I tell you, when I decided to get out, you know, there's a point where you get out and I had ran the Y Nationals for nine years and at the same time, one year I ran the Y Nationals, twice I did, and the Senior Nationals in the same year, and I was getting a little burned out. Yeah. And I decided to back off for a while, and I kind of retired from meat production. And there were people who were upset with me because I wasn't doing it anymore, because they had just lost what they loved to do. They yeah. were angry at me, not understanding that of the situation. It would take me a year to pull one of these events off with everything else I had to do. It just didn't happen. It was a ton of work that went into a ton of yeah. time, communication, you know, uh, making sure people were where they were supposed to be, et cetera, et cetera. All the provisions were there. So I was surprised when that happened that 
you know, I had angered a lot of people that I thought were friendly to me. Yeah. And, you know, a few years later, uh, when the APF and the WPC was created, you know, there was a few world meets that were in different countries that we would go lift in, whether it was in England or Austria, South Africa. Uh, I remember Mariah and Ernie, France, calling, talking to me. They wanted me to host it. And I said, okay, it's been four years. I think I can still do that. I still got the people to pull it off. And I ran it in 94 and 95. And... Uh, but that was a that was a, I was a little surprised by that when that happened with everything that I had put into it that people would turn somewhat against me because it was almost like I was supposed to do it for them. I got that's you. how it got. Yeah, you know they expected that, and I'm not trying to be negative towards those people. I'm yeah. just trying to you know answer your question. Um, <clears throat> unless I'm ignorant of meats of that caliber, is there anything that comes close? what you've done in today the yeah no no because the sport's so fragmented yeah. you know there's so many federations you know i'm talking about a time when there was one or two it was yeah. the uspf and then there was the apf you know and my y national mate was dual sanctioned so you could be from either federation i don't care yeah okay and you could set records for either federation i don't care you know today you go to a meet and there's you know your girlfriend's there and maybe your grandma shows up and a dog and <laughs> you know it's kind of a mishmash of people and, you know, I just think, and I just remember, man, it was so different, you know. And every now and then, you know, I'll see somebody from years back, I'll go, you ever going to run one of those meets again? Yeah. You know, and I'm like, no, I'm done. You know, I've been there, done that. But, uh, yeah, it's, you, don't, you don't find that anywhere today. It's amazing because some of the lifts that have been made now are so astonishing that they're done in the most remote of locations. Yes. Um, and I know, like, the, the APF is trying to promote and come to, to make a more of a, uh, I'm not sure if a statement, but to put on a good show for more people to see it. But just listen to this. I mean, having something come out of the ground with your height to like, that's just a, like amazing. And now I can see more too is how you and Lou clicked mm -hmm. that. Um, it just reminds me of stuff. Well, if it wasn't invented, it's phenomenal. Now here's a here's a chance to make something happen. You know, I'd go into the gym, we'd go into lift one day, and I knew I wanted to ask him something. Say, Louis, here's what I'm thinking about for the meet. What do you think of this? What do you think of this? And he goes, Oh yeah. He goes, Well, how about this? And I was like, Yeah, okay, we can do that. You know, I, there was no limits for me. Yeah. I just tried whatever you know was possible, and it, it was nice for me. You know, I wasn't an 800 pound squatter or 600 pound bencher. I wasn't one of those guys, but I was that guy. Yeah. And I was still accepted by everybody, and that was a big part of it. Yeah, yeah. And I, I would, yeah, I would bounce stuff off of him and ask him what he thought or what do you think about this, and you know, we, we would discuss things. And I just always was, like I said, I was never satisfied with what I did. What was Louis like as a mentor to you? Oh man, I mean, everything I know about powerlifting, I know from him. Everything. Yeah. You know. And I, I said, you know, we didn't have speed training and bands and chains until the early mid-90s. I mean, we, we were like guinea pigs in the garage for those 10, 12-ish, whatever years. But Louis always helped me, always. I mean, you know, and again, I wasn't the guy there. I, wasn't, I didn't have the gifts, the physical gifts of other people, but I was willing to try and work hard. And uh, a special moment in my life for me. In 1990, uh, I went to a meet as a 98. I squatted 710, I benched 460, and I pulled 600. I got my elite. Uh, 
At the same time, about a week later, Doug Heath became the first person at 132 to bench 400. This is in 1990. So Louie has us over to the gym, and he presents us with a silver sword. Oh, wow. Now, I mean, I have a trophy case at home, and it's... That, that's an amazing thing, because anyone who knows Lou knows that's a, 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 rare, a rare thing for him to, to do yeah. something like that. It's my most prized possession. Excuse me. Oh, you're fine. It's, um, as you said, it's, it's a surreal time. And as we said, yeah. like Louis, to Louis, his life is short stories day by day. And mm -hmm. he may have talked to one or 20 people on that given day. And everyone has their, their Louis stories. Um, how important was that group to you? Just say in terms of how your life turned out. You know, powerlifting was what I did, but it wasn't who I was. Yeah. There's a difference. You know, for some people, they get into this and it's their whole life. Yeah. It's, you know, they don't have, I, I've always tried to maintain balance in my life, in my, in, in my relationships, with my kids, with my family, with my business, with my friends. You know, uh, it was always something that uh, I did, but it wasn't my life. But those guys, was, I could just switch gears. Like when I would walk into the gym, I could just be there instantly. Yeah. I might be in a meeting someplace regarding a business trying to sponsor this or that for my company or the Y or whatever it was, but I could switch gears real quick and I could get in the mode real fast. You know, like the music, okay, ACDC, <laughs> over and over and over. I can tell you the sequence of every song of ACDC, and even today I hear one of those songs and my mind is in a squat rack on a Friday night <laughs> over at 590 Larkham, you know. It's just funny how those things come back to you, Yeah, you know. And I, I can remember even too, I, you know, I would see Lou years later at these different meets I would be competing in. I, was, I, I just, I ended up, I had both of my hips replaced and I've had both of my shoulders replaced. So I got four titanium implants. I've had 13 surgeries altogether. I yeah. ruptured both triceps, uh, uh, ruptured a bicep, double shoulder scope, hip scope, D scope. Have, I've had open heart surgery to replace a valve in my aorta. Okay. And uh, so I've, you know, paid a price, so to speak, for everything that I've been able to do. Yeah. But I went to a meet a few years back. It was out in Newark, and Lou was there, and he yelled over to me, and he goes, I just want you to know how proud I am that you're still lifting. Yeah. You know, I'm 68. I was just in a meet this past year, and still want to go to more meets. I hope I can be around still when I'm in my 70s, because, you know, the nice thing about master's powerlifting is that it goes into the 80s and 90s. Yeah. You know, very seldom do you see one of those people and, you know, since I've turned 55, I've set 36 world records in the bench press and master's competition in five different federations, whether it's the WNPF, the IPA, APF, RPS, or what am I missing? Or some other one, <laughs> SPF, perhaps. Um, I always I go and I look and see what's the number, you know, what's the IPA record for 65 to 69, and I go try to find a meet that I can go break a record in, you know. And with my implants, I'm not even supposed to be doing this. Yeah. Because I was told you, you can't load weights on these, but I still do. Yeah. You know, I wear a multiply bench shirt um, to compress the, the sockets, and I'm still able to survive, so to speak. Do you like challenges? Is that why you still do it? Yeah. Yeah, I still get, you know, like I was in the gym this morning at 9 o'clock with my two workout partners, and raw squatted 410 for a set of five with a safety squat bar. Yeah. I can't get under a straight bar because I can't externally rotate my hands with my implants. But I still like to challenge myself. Yeah, you know, um, I just, I just, I, I can't explain it. It's just me.
Yeah. You know? When you met Lou, did you immediately understand that to him, powerlifting was his life? Oh, yeah. That everything else was oh, just... Oh, yeah. You, you got... When you, you know, you go to the garage, you better be ready. Yeah. Because right? this is it. It's... Well, the workouts were far more difficult than going to a meet. Yeah. Because you had him, you know... There was nothing like, like even, you know, I used to work out with Bob Coe and Jeff Gritter, two great guys yeah. who helped me a lot. And uh, Jeff Adams, excuse me, Gritter. And we would squat together and he would come in and here goes the music and here comes Lou and it's just like game on. All right. Yeah. And I would look down, I'm looking, there's blood all over the floor. I'm like, okay, who's in here this morning? Whose blood's that? You know, <laughs> and the music would go on and here some speed training would start and a change or clang and enough away we go. But yeah, you had to realize when he's there, it's all business because, you know, you can be easily kicked out of there. And I, I can remember many times where there would be a vote yeah. to keep someone or let somebody go, you know. And sometimes there were people I didn't even know because I never saw them. They came in with a different group of people, you know. But yeah, with him, there was never any guesswork with that. It was all all business. And, you know, it it made the difference. Yeah. It made all the difference in the world because, you know, he, you, you can never, like I said, you can't duplicate him. It's not possible. Oh, no. As he gave the maximum example of if you want to be truly dedicated to something, here's the cost. Mm -hmm. And um, to him, it just came so natural. You know, and, and, and all that, he's still the funniest person I've ever met in my life. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. You know, you would just hope that when he would go on a roll or a rant that you were just about finished because if not, you could you would be laughing so hard, you'd be crying. Yeah. He would get on somebody, me, sometimes, other people, you know. But he was such a funny guy. Oh, my gosh. Such a sense of humor. <laughs> just, you know, always in, a, always in a positive mood, though. That was the one thing. You yeah. know, I never would see him cranky or pissed off or this or that. You know, even when he was working as a heavy crane operator, you know, eight hours running that yeah. crane, hard work. He'd come in there and, man, he was, it was like it never even happened for him. He was always wound up and ready to go. Did you notice differences throughout the various decades? Yes. And just obviously the training progressed and you were part of the old guard that went through all the maximum. Like the, <laughs> there were the maximum years where like we were going all out to where towards the 2000s upwards became the optimal years where uh, injuries doesn't have to be a part of yes. things. But in Lou, did you see a way in when he went from lifter to lifter coach to coach yes and did you notice a difference yes he that? always wanted to be a great lifter and he was yeah you know five elites different weight classes but he wanted to be that champion guy you know and he was at you know 98 220 that's a tough class yeah there's so many good guys you know i'd run the y nationals you can come in 10th place and be elite wow 10th place and yeah. be elite you know but he always wanted to be a great lifter and he was up against some tough guys like larry and ernie and just, you know, it was always hard. He was always top three, top five. He was always there. But as time went along, that subsided. He would start to specialize in some things like a bench or maybe the squat. But then he became fascinated by the acquisition of strength and reading literature and talking to people and over the phone or in person and started. And like I said, I remember he said, What's my first book? When I write my book, you're going to see it in my book. I never saw a book until a few years later. Then there was like, I don't know, was he got 20 books now or something like 12. That? Okay, 12. That's, yeah. that's 12 is enough. The videos <laughs> and everything and all the seminars. And he just, boy, that, you know, I wish we would have had access to his knowledge yeah. back then because, you know, it was just all balls to the wall every time we went to the gym to train. And, um, he became a little different in that regard. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, in your gym here, he could spread himself amongst 30 people and give everybody equal attention. Yeah. You know, uh, 
just because he was so into what he did. And I don't care who it was. I remember I'd go in and we'd go to work out and he's got a Green Bay Packer hat on. Well, then next week it's a Clemson t-shirt. I figured, well, the strength coach of Clemson was just here this morning yeah. or the guy from the Packers was just here. And that did start till later on as well. Yeah. You know, when he became the, the, the strength guru. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there was an evolution of him as well, not only just as a lifter, but also as the premier person to talk to about strength training because he whether it was in track and field or it was in boxing or mma fighting or powerlifting weightlifting he there was nothing you can tell him he knew everything it really seemed that his worst days or athletes worst days in terms of injuries we benefited from those mishaps because that's when information had to be sought after yes and that's when like well if we have to fix this, there's not a machine, we have to invent this machine. And it's because of those mishaps that our general, like we get to benefit hugely from that. And I remember my, and again, this is what 2011, every person that come in is always injured. And I'm like, is this where injured people, but Louis was the last hope for a lot of people. Yes. And I'd never seen him um, fail because he's seen it over and over and over yes. and over again. And um, that's what makes this place so special that it's always been athlete first yes it's never been money first it's never been success first it's always been how do we fix your problem yes and louis loved the thrill of problem solving mm -hmm. like he didn't i remember he didn't want to talk to any nfl team or combine because it's just too boring i'm like how is this too this is the, <laughs> this is the gold standard for strength coaches <laughs> wanting to get in at the time how is this boring and then you can just see how his mind worked it's like he wanted challenges yes um when he was a lift training as a lifter, was he always competitive? Yes. Like, was that a big oh, part? Oh, very much so. Oh, yeah, he was driven all the time. Yeah, he was all the time. And he went through some terrible injuries himself yeah. you know, with his spine, and he almost died once. Yeah. I remember that very well. And uh, so he personally had had adverse effects like many of us. But, you know, there ain't no stopping him. You can take an elephant gun, shoot him, he's still going to come up and squat in that rack that night. Yeah. It's just the way he was, you know. Um, but even like you would sit down sometimes with him and you would talk about a problem you were having in a certain lift, and he knew so much. What you had to be able to do was to discern this avalanche of information. I just need one thing or two. Yeah. Not eight. Yeah. I hear everything you're saying, but how do I apply all of that to get it down to one or two. Yeah. And I learned to to listen to that. And as he was talk, I would go, oh, that's there. That, yeah, that makes sense. And and that, yes. And I would do that, yeah. you know, and I would pick it out because there were so many. And, you know, there's, there's lots of ways to be successful in lifting. Yeah. A lot of people do it a lot of different ways, right? Um, but the bottom line is results. Yeah. There's really not one right way, but learning the conjugate method, learning about speed training and all that, you know, to, to prevent yourself from being grossly overtrained, to prevent yourself from being injured. Yeah. We didn't have that, but he came up with that in later years to his, his credit because, and that's why you see some of the numbers that you see today. Yeah. They're just off the ball. I mean, when I talked to him about it, I'm like, Louis, how's a guy benching, you know, 11, 1200 pounds when we lifted, if you did 600 raw, that was impressive. Yeah. You know, or if you could pull 800 off the floor, that was a lot of weight, let alone 900. You know, a guy, a guy today squat 12, whatever, 100 pounds, and 
I remember I saw the first 1,000-pound squat that Dave Wellington did over yeah. in Zanesville in 1984. I remember when Matt Dimble squatted 10-10. You know, we had our first 1,000-pound squatter. Well, today, I don't know, there's 100 guys that have squatted 1,000. Yeah. It's just nuts. Well, and then you have Huff, who yeah. just sets above the rest. Yeah. It's just like, yeah. what? It's, it's amazing what it's done for powerlifting. But from my side, the conjugate method, I've never utilized a system that transfers over to skill acquisition better than that for professional athletes. It gives them the maximum opportunity to acquire more skill. So if you're a football player, MMA, whatever your sport discipline is that requires skill, it keeps you healthy and strong enough to learn more. You know, you would know this better because of the, the business that you run. I would imagine he's more popular outside of the US. Oh yeah. In Europe, you know, Baltic countries, Asia, than he is even here because there's no voice there, you know? Well, I, that's what blew my, I learned of Louis in college. And um, I just assumed, as you would, that Ohio State, back, like he must have been uh, probably an in-house, you bring him in every month and he <laughs> right. would give, you right. just, because he was this big thing um, overseas. Uh, and then you're like, no, it's still rather underground over here, which is, it was baffling. Because I remember when I got an email back, it was from Doris. And I'm like, that's very strange. I'm, his wife is emailing me. Because I thought it was this big, it's like the Wizard of Oz. I thought it was this huge <laughs> yeah, well, thing. It was kind of like that. Yeah, and then yeah. you go behind the screen, you're like, <laughs> yes, oh. That's a good analogy. Yeah. And, um, but I've never met a group of more dedicated people in anything. Mm -hmm. I, I've, I've, I've never seen a person who solved the problems he did in a gym. Like, no matter what the problem, doesn't necessarily mean it was a gym-related problem. Like, people have come to Louis with everything for guidance. And he always said the answer was in these four walls of the gym. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, to me, just completely, I threw out the vast majority of information I learned at college. It, it taught me, like, what not to do. But then there's the real-life aspect. And, um, again, that's all benefit from you guys. You don't know how far is too far until you get there. Yes. And there was a lot of you guys that went way past what too far <laughs> was. And then minimal was never an option here. So it was either optimal to maximal. And then just by sheer data of numbers alone, we got to optimal training. And powerlifting is the best to find maximal in terms of intensities and weightlifting. But when he started getting more of the football players in and then he loved fighting loved boxing loved MMA yes, yes he did then you could just see we benefited from that to where the new generation came in they were already strong but he's like well what's the next challenge right and he took all these principles and put them into where we're trying to figure out like why is this carrying over so well well because they can learn more skill and skill trumps vast majority of everything in sports and uh, he was the first strength coach I ever met that what are you going these going to do with these people he didn't just say, I want to make them bigger, faster, stronger. You're like, I'm going to make them better at their sport. And like, just the way he thought, which was kind of contradictory than what most coaches were doing back then. Um, you know, from a human standpoint, all the people that he has touched in his life, you know, me, the guys I lifted with over all the years, what he gave those people as a human being in terms of their self-worth yeah. and a place in life, uh, a meaning of status, 
to become important, to be viewed as something that they weren't before in a positive way, it's just endless. Yeah. All of us were touched in some way, somehow, you know, even though we all came and went, people come and go in any kind of sport. But from a human standpoint, I, I just think back at everything he's done and all the lives that he's touched and the, the people that he's affected in a positive way. It's just amazing. What made that era so special? Like, the, like you had Louis, Larry Pacifico, Ernie Franz. Mm -hmm. You had all these people. Um, God, my uh, mind's drawn blanks. Um, uh, George Friend. Mm -hmm. You had a uh, Don Reinhold. Yeah, you had mm -hmm. all like what? What made this so? You know, special? it was. I called it the golden age of powerlifting, from mm -hmm. probably seventy-five to ninety-five-ish to two thousand. Yeah. And there was, there was no social media. There was no internet. You had this magazine, and this magazine would show up once a month. And you would just, you know, he came, Mike Lambert came out with what's called the Power Hotline at one point, and I subscribed to it. I just remember, I would get it, and as soon as I got it, I'd give it to Lou. And he was so yeah. excited to get it because he wanted to read about it. Everybody was on the Power Hotline because it came out every two weeks. Yeah. So he was ahead of everybody else, right? I he would take you. the hotline, like, here, lose the hotline. I, I got it, and I would give it to him all the time. But it was just the golden age, and it, it's where it, it just took off then. You know, yeah. apparently it started in, really in the mid-60s over at York Barbell. You know, uh, Bob Hoffman was sponsoring a powerlifting team, and the first lift in the meet actually was a bench press, and then you squatted, and then you deadlift, and that's yeah. what the order was. No gear, no this, no that. You know, rickety squat racks, a rickety bench. But uh, that's when it all started, and you just had a couple federations. Now, you imagine, you got one federation at the time, the USPF, then it became two of the APF because of the drug testing. Yeah. Right? But you got even more lifters because of that. So now you got all these people, and you go to a meet. It's like a who's who, yeah. you know, like my YMC national meet. Like, holy smokes, look who's here. Who's not elite? Everybody's elite. You had to be elite to lift in that meet. Yeah. It wasn't like you can come and be your first contest. You had to qualify to go. And it was like superstars of the sport. And everyone would talk. Yes. Like phone calls was just a norm. Like yeah. sharing, like the yeah. sharing of ideas. Uh, he would talk about George Crawford and what mm -hmm. he learned from him. Mm -hmm. And... um I think a lot of that is lost potentially because you think you can learn from social media, but like obviously Lou, Lou freaking hated technology. It wasn't him, but a phone call or meeting that interaction, he would just learn so much from every visitor was an opportunity for him to learn. They come to learn from him and he'd end up learning way more from mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. um, Cause see Lou always knew what he knew. Yeah. He knows what he knows. What, what do you know? Well, yeah. Tell me about you, you know, and he would pick up something and go, Hmm. Never thought about that. And he would try to take that nugget and apply it into all the other stuff that is this encyclopedia of information that he knows and just add that to the repertoire. Everybody was a source of information. What were some of the most interesting things you have seen? Like in that gym or the stuff oh, came through? There has wow. been a lot. I saw I saw the first thousand pound squat. I saw uh the first seven hundred pound bench. Who uh, was that? That was, uh, my mind just went blank, uh, in Hawaii, um, Tedar City. Okay. Yeah. In a t-shirt. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, uh, I, I went to a meet one time. What was that? USPF seniors watching. There was a lifter named Gene Bell. 
181 pounder. Yeah. He was a sergeant in the Marine Corps. You know, black guy, 5'4", built like a brick shit house. I think he's, I can't remember exactly, but he opened with what he saw, thought was 705 in the squat. And it was misloaded by 90 pounds. He squatted 804. I think I'm correct with this number. Not knowing it was 804 on his opening attempt and stood up with it. What? That's amazing. You know, and yeah. he had never squatted. I don't think he's ever did it in his life, and he did it on his opener, thinking it was 705. Um, I remember over in Dayton when Larry ran the, the seniors one year, and, um, oh, what was his name? The guy squatted over 1,000, walking the weight out three times. Oh, help me, please. So I'll, I'll get it here in a second. So he, he calls for a 1,000-pound squat, and it was like 1020 or so. And he comes out and he walks, he goes down and it goes over his head. The bar goes over his head and knocks him out. So they pick him up. There's plates and everything, boom, going all over the place. You know, there's just jack racks at the time. There's no Lee Moran? Lee Moran. Thank yep. you. Thank you so much. And uh, so he, he wants to try it again. So he tries again. He walks it out and they don't have the collars tightened all the way. Boom. There goes the 100 pound plates. They go flying off the bar. It's like a bomb goes off on the platform. Boom, bang, smash, down, boom, <laughs> crash. He goes down. You know, it's like, fireworks and they pick him back up and the place is like oh my gosh you know and all of a sudden the answer goes if you want him to see, lee says if he'll try it again if you want him to well the place goes crazy yeah. okay and he had a big venue there with a lot of several thousand people and lee moran goes out and he goes down with it and stands right up with him the place just goes crazy it was yeah. just insane to see someone basically die on the platform attempting a lift twice and then come back and make it yeah you know unbelievable um, I remember uh, years ago, I, w I used to run the bench meet for the Arnold, and we had invited a lifter who got the gold medal in the Paralympics. He didn't basically have legs, so yeah. he would arm walk his way out to the bench, and we would get him up on the bench, and we'd have to strap him down so he wouldn't tip off to the side. And he's benching like 450 with half of a body, you know, and the place just goes nuts Yeah, to see stuff like that, you know. I mean, I, I, there, I, there's things I haven't witnessed here, but back in my day, in, you know, in the 80s and 90s, Laura Dodd was the premier 165-pounder in the world. Yeah. 573 squat, 551 deadlift. You know, and then you have, comes along, help me again, um, who shatters all of her records. Amy? Uh, not Amy, Amy. but... Um, Laura Phelps? Laura Phelps, thank mm -hmm. you. I can't remember people here. A 765 squat. I'm like, yeah. what? That's more than I ever squatted. It's a 98. It's a man. You know, a 540 bench, my best was 500. It's just nuts. I just, to see people do certain things like that, uh, it's just astounding. I mentioned Doug's bench, Doug Heath's bench, 400 at 132, 32 years ago, you know, yeah. single ply shirt, another tremendous lift. You know, watching Lamar Gant deadlift oh, yeah. at 132 with a terrible scoliosis to pull 661 off the floor, weighing 132. Um, we had a guy at one of my senior national meets named Gary Heisey, and he was six foot eight. He was a big guy. He used to play basketball. And at the time, I think the world record in the deadlift was a little over nine. He pulls 935, you know, and the place erupts, of course, when you see those kind of numbers yeah. by people. And then, but today, you know, some of those things are just kind of commonplace because, you know, genetically, it's like swimmers and runners. You're like at a swim meet. Uh, you know, yeah. you go to the Olympics, like Mark Spitz, what he did 50 yeah. years ago, he wouldn't even make a high school team almost with yeah. his times, you know? Yeah. Um, and lifting's the same way. The numbers just keep going up every now and then. I'll get on powerlifting watch and I'll see some guy 
squat over a thousand raw and pull 900 raw and bench 600 raw. And it's just like, wow. I think people have a hard time comprehending what heavyweight is. Yes. Uh, Strongman does a great job of using, using objects to go, well, I know a car is heavy or I know that a tree log is heavy or a ship pulling that. It's, it's easy for someone to understand that. But when someone lifts a heavy weight, unless you're around it, like a thousand pounds is no joke. No, right. Like it's just insane. It's a number. Or a 500, hell, a four, four, anything over 400 pounds and a bench raw is just ridiculous. Mm -hmm. um, but everyone's just like, oh, it is what it is. I'm like, not until you actually feel heavy weight. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's very hard to portray that feeling when a lot of people, unless you're interested, don't understand what they're watching. Mm -hmm. um, I remember one of my Y National meets in the mid 80s, there was a lifter named Rick Weil. 165 pounder, no gear, no belt, no wrist straps, no nothing. In fact, his shoes were slippers. He comes out and benches 551. Now this is 35 years ago. At, at 165, 181, I can't remember, he was one or the other. Nothing, just, just, and just no emotion, just lays down and presses the weight. You know, no arch, no excessive arch, no short arms, nothing to give him leverage advantage, just boom, strength. Do you think everyone's just so much more consistent with training? Or like what was, it's just amazing I, to hear. I just think it's just genetics. People are bigger today. You know, yeah. you look at, you know, I got my 50 year high school reunion this summer. Okay. When I was in high school, if you weighed 200 pounds, you were a tackle. You're not a tackle yeah. today if you weigh 200 pounds. Yeah. Maybe a safety. Yeah. You know, you're not even a running back. It's just genetically, people are just so big and they just grow stronger and become faster and throw objects farther and jump higher. And look at basketball players. I mean, look at the evolution of how they looked. If you watch a video back in the 60s, it's just a bunch of tall guys. Yeah. You know, you look at the guys today, they're all they're built, they're put together, you know, because they do something year round, like weight training. Yeah. When I first started, in the 70s, I was hired as a school's first strength and conditioning coach, and I had coaches didn't want to send athletes to me because you're, it'll make you slow and muscle-bound, yeah. right? That myth that exists yeah. that squats are bad for your knees, and if you lift weights when you get older, all that muscle turns into fat. You know, all these crazy things. Well, today it's mainstream. Every, well, it school, in the set, like, every school, every sport does weight training. It's Alvin, all mainstream. Alvin Roy in 1976, I believe, was the first professional strength coach. With the Oakland Raiders. Yeah, right. which I think it's very interesting that you had – uh, the academics, so you had uh, Kramer, Terry, Todd, you had everyone this side, and you had Westside Barbell, who was really starting the garage gym scene back in the 70s, and if you look at it now, it's so popular mm -hmm. that people wouldn't even second guess to put a gym in your garage. Well, that you guys were all doing this back in the 70s. You know, CrossFit. Look at CrossFit. Yeah. It's just an empty box someplace with some free weights. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, it's just amazing how, and it's so new, people forget that, that before we have all the, like the battle of the methods, who trains the best and, well, they forget that it was the culture that created the consistency that made these methods possible. Mm -hmm. And you'd look at all these different people who are so strong, they all didn't train the same, but what they all did was shared information. Mm -hmm. And Louis was the one who tried to get as much information as possible. And he's like, well, why would I, why wouldn't I do all the best things they're doing and avoid the stuff that doesn't work? And like that simple philosophy, look what that evolved into the system of training. Yes, yes, yes. Um, what's one of your most memorable Louis stories? I remember when he almost died. 
you know, that was a harrowing experience. And he came back with a trach in his throat. And I remember Tuck was there when Train helped him train, didn't put no pity party on him, you know, <laughs> as you would think, right? Yeah. Knowing Chuck, right? I mean, most intense, most intense lifter I ever trained with, to me, in my time, him and Doug were the two greatest lifters ever to come out of Westside Barbell, by far. But that was a scary time when that happened. Was that the dentist? Yeah. 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 And, you know, and the anesthesia, what it caused, and all the stuff that went along with it. And, I mean, you know, we almost lost him years yeah. ago. You know, I, I can't think, I can think of a lot of funny stories, but I can't think of a momentous thing. I just... Uh, Even some of the funny stories, Anthony, that... <laughs> we were... That was one. We were so one time. I know Bill Whitaker was here a short while ago, and I hadn't seen Bill in a long time. And so, in Powerlifting USA, there was a top 100 list that came out every month, and you were looked forward to that because once a year you could see how you would compare to other people. Yeah. And Bill was at 165, and he could squat and deadlift about 600. And I, I don't know, he was close to a 300 bench. You know, he didn't have a great bench yeah. compared to a squat and deadlift. So it's on the wall, okay. And we're, this is the garage here, okay. So he's looking. And he goes, Lou, I don't see my bench here. And Lou comes over and he goes, wait a minute. And Lou walks across the garage onto the other wall and goes, Bill, it's over here. <laughs> <laughs> that was Louie, right? Yeah. We were at a meet once up in Canton, the Women's Nationals. And Sue Meany was one of the women I got started in lifting. And, you know, she was a heavyweight. And her and Lou were walking down the hall. And Susie and I are standing there. And she's got these gray sweats on. And he just walks up and he just says, she looks good in gray. Just, you know, and I'm trying not to laugh to embarrass her or anything, but it was just such a funny thing, you know? It's just these little one-liners he would come up with every now and then, you know, yeah. different things. And we had another guy, Randy Gamage was a 220-pound lifter and a very explosive bencher, and and he was gaining weight. And he said to Lou one day, he goes, he says, Lou, my waist is getting so big. And Louie says, We're, we always say, Randy, you're the biggest waist we ever saw. <laughs> you know, ba-bump-bump. Bump, yeah. right? it, it was just like that with him all the time, you yeah. know. And he, he just, just a funny guy. Just a funny guy. You said Chuck and Doug were one of the most, or were the most. To me. Yeah. What made him that way? What made him so special? Uh, they could go to big meets outside of here and perform. Yeah. Chicago, Texas, California, wherever, you know. And I prided myself on that, too, as a master lifter. I was able to go. I won five national meets that way. I could perform, too. And some guys just couldn't do it. They just could, They didn't have the mental fortitude to be outside of their realm, to not have their guys around them. Yeah. Chuck and Doug, not those two, man. I mean, two best lifters I ever saw come out of Westside. That's just me. Yeah. You know. And Chuck's by far, I had to squat with him a couple times, Chuck. <laughs> I thought I was going to die. Louis paired me up with Chuck. He paired me up with George Halbert once on the bench. All we did was use bands one day. I'm like, okay, George is benching 700 at, at 181, all right? I can bench 450, 460. Like, what am I doing on the bench with him? That's how Lou did things, you know? Yeah. And I'm in, I'm in the monolith with Chuck, and we got, like, I think four and a quarter on with 80 pounds of chains, and he's standing up with, like, 135. Boom. Boom, boom. You know, and I'm standing up with it, but it doesn't like that. And I know sooner I'm out of the rack than he's done. He goes, you're up. And I'm like, Lou says 45 seconds. He goes, no, you're up. Heart. I'm thinking I'm going to die today, but I've always wanted to die on a platform. So maybe this is it. You know? Yeah. Chuck was just off the wall intense, man. There's no one, no one I've ever seen like that. 
what are some of the biggest mistakes you see people make when it comes to training? Um, well, technique is one. You know, you walk into any place, any fitness center, quote unquote, even places where high school weight rooms, whatever, the shoes that they wear, you know, they got whatever athletic shoes on when we know the Chuck Taylors is supposed to, what you're supposed to wear, we all had Chuck Taylors, right? Uh, the stance that they take, narrow stance squats, knees going forward over their ankles, you know, not sitting their butt back, not using a wide stance. Uh, the bench press, not setting their lats before they press, tucking their elbows as they press elbows, you know, external rotation of the elbows. Yeah. Um, not being prepared physically to do what they're trying to do, not spending the time necessary to build the base to push the number that they want to push. Yeah. You know, always maxing out all the time and wonder why their shoulder hurts so bad and you know, benching and then doing inclines and then doing dumbbells and doing all the shoulder pressing and running why their AC joint hurts, you know, those type of things. You know, and you just see them over and over and over again. It's common mistakes. Do you have any tips for people who are getting into it, getting into weight training? Well, it takes time, you know. Uh, learn good form and technique first. You probably hear that all the time. People saying something they already know. Uh, stay consistent. Consistency. You know, I kept track of this. This sounds weird. It probably doesn't sound possible. But I started lifting in the fall of 73. And in my life, I have missed this many workouts. Wow. Seven. One, two, three, four joint replacements. Yeah. Five, six, seven. I went 30 years before I missed one. That was me. You know, and I got that from him. Yeah. You know, no, if if I had to go to a, a seminar or a meeting on a Friday or something, I couldn't get to, I would do it on a Thursday, but I always got it in. And people just don't stay consistent enough. You know, they want it yesterday. Someone will go, well, if I went to a meet, I want to go to a bench meet. What does it take to win? You want a trophy? Yeah. Well, go buy one if you want one. <laughs> you know, if you want a trophy, go buy one. Go earn it first. Don't worry about that. Yeah. It's like people that want to run. They want to win the 10K or win the marathon the first race. You know, just get in your first race. Get in your first meet. Establish some numbers. See where you're at. Now you have some baseline to go with. Yeah. You know, everybody wants it now. To work for it, it's just not appealing. Yeah. You know, it's just not appealing to people. They just want it now. And they're looking for a quick, easy fix, and it's just old school works. Barbells, dumbbells, it never goes out of style. It's not called anything, but it sure as damn well works when you use it right. Simplicity is key. That's right. To you, is lifting it's just like breathing? Is yeah. It's, it's just part of your life? Yeah. Um, I wish more people viewed it that way because I think it's a lot easier for people to comprehend that um, a workout isn't just for the sake of vanity, more so for mental and physical health, it's there's nothing better. One. Yeah, when you go to the gym, you have a great workout, you do something you haven't done, you feel terrific. I know yeah. I do personal training today, I've been doing it for quite a while now, many years, and I have like 60 some clients, and they're older folks, yeah, you know, people in their 60s, 70s that are just trying to keep some strength, keep their mobility, feel a little better, look a little better. And I and I tell them, when you walk back to the car after we're done here, don't you feel good? Oh, yeah, I feel better. You can't measure feel better. Yeah. I can measure your weight loss, your VO2 max, or your resting heart rate, or your cholesterol level, or whatever it is. But that feel better, I can't measure. And that's the reason to do this. You just feel better with regular exercise. And fortunately, weight training today is mainstream, like especially for young people, but even for older people too. 
You know, people are now accepting the fact. You know, I worked for Orthopedic One for six, seven years as their fitness director. So I would take care of patients after physical therapy that needed to start a fitness program yeah. so that their knee replacement has a better outcome. You know, I would deal with overweight, obese, obese people all the time. 300, 400 pound people was a regular thing for me. Yeah. And they would wonder, why is my knee still hurt? My back still hurts. Well, you can't carry that weight on your skeleton. So I would try to get involved in a fitness program to change their lifestyle. Yeah. And sometimes I would share a story about myself where I started as I told you a while ago, where when I, when I first got into this and tell them, that as long as you get better, don't compare yourself to other people. Yeah. As long as you get better, that's all that matters. And just let it take you wherever it's going to go. Because people do get better and then they get into something else, which never even thought they could do because it never took the time to do what they were supposed to do first. You know, it's just a choice. Yeah. If you're going to exercise, there's no excuses. It's just choices, choices and consequences. This might be a strange question. Um, what's it like to grow older while weight training, like com yeah. compared to the younger guys, the Gary now. We saw, you know, I have a, my training partner, Jeff, he's 67. I have another training partner, Don, he's 75. He can raw bench three and a quarter at 181. He's 75. Yeah. And I, I train him and I have to remember He's 75 years old, okay, <laughs> yeah. when I'm having him do things. And yeah. we've all had procedures done, all of us, all yeah. three of us. And sometimes we'll go, gosh, you know, I'll, like today I squatted 410 for five. And I remember when I did 615 for five. Well, that was 30 years ago, yeah. you know. And it's just the body as you get older, everything gets harder, everything. And you, that's what's nice about the master's competition. That's what's kept me going. If there wasn't such a thing with master competition and records, I don't think I'd still be going. To, I know I wouldn't be going at this level. It just gives me a reason to drive myself, to challenge myself. Yeah. But you have to learn how to be humbled. Because you can't do what you used to do. Nobody can. Yeah. You know, nobody can do what they did when they were 20, 30, or 40 years old, those prime years. You know, like I said, I'll be 68 in a couple months and, you know, I can, I'm still pretty strong. Yeah. But not like I was, and nor is anybody else, you know. And you just have to humble yourself and go, okay, I got to stay fit here. It's good for my health. Big picture. Yeah. Right. I want to wake up tomorrow. <laughs> You know, uh, I like to lift into my 70s. You know, it's kind of a fun thing to think about. Um, so that's the main thing is you just have to humble yourself and realize you can't do the things you used to do. You can do a lot of things, but you have yeah. to adapt. In your head, are you still young? Yeah. Um, has weight training helped with that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, I, I know I can do things that nobody else can do Yeah. for my age. You know, I know what people are doing or not doing. You know, I could take a yellow tablet. Long yellow tablet, and I could write a hundred names of guys I've trained with since day one. A hundred, yeah, they're gone, come and gone. Yeah, I'm still standing, trying. Yeah, well, I'm trying. I remember, and I said that to you before we got started. As Lou was like, "There's Gary Bamford," and I'm like, "Okay," and he's like, "Fucker, still going." <laughs> and he's like, "Tom, the biggest test, test of time. He's outlasting me. He's still doing competitions." And he goes, "Gotta give him credit. Gotta give him credit." Um, you know, that's it's like getting anointed Yeah, for me. Well, I mean, uh, I've said this in multiple podcasts, but when you're around Louis, you know where you stand with if he ends up, well, that's Gary. I said, with Jimmy Sizer, that's just Jimmy. <laughs> like, once you're in the ecosystem and he's mentioning your name, you know that that's, you're part yes. of a special time yeah. in his life. He wasn't the most... Um, outwardly emotionally intelligent person to to show you stuff but internally you knew lou you knew everything that what meant to him we all did um and i know 
we're running short on time and I'd love to get you on again because I've got so many more questions that sure. are coming up now. But we like to uh, wrap this up with um, what are you most proud of with your time with Louis and Westside Barbell? The fact that I got my elite status, that was always a goal. It took me 17 years. That's a long time yeah. to shoot for a goal. I started in 73, I got it in 90. And without him, I never would have happened. You know, and it's, I mean, there's how many elites have been here? A hundred? I don't know. There's, it's just 110. Yeah. Something yeah. like that. I've been, you know, I've been in a little over a hundred meets myself in my yeah. life, you know, but when I got my elite status and he presented me with that sword, it was like the queen anointing me, you know, yeah. making me sir or something, you know, making you, when having you stand out, Doug and I, to do that. And, you know, I've won a world championships. I've won national meets. I've set world records. Not anything like that. Because it was from him. Yeah. Gary, I truly appreciate the time, and I hope we can do this again. Yeah, I hope so, too. Thank you so much. I appreciate you inviting me here today. Thank you.